What is Maine? Who is Maine? What are the stories of those who have lived here from the beginning, that migrated here, and that continue to inhabit this unique place? These are conversations from the pointed firs, invoking the spirit of place with artists and authors from Maine. I'm Peter Neal, host of Conversations from the Pointed Furs. My guest today is William Carpenter, author of Silence, a novel published this year by Islandport Press, Yarmouth, Maine. Bill was born in Waterville, graduated from Dartmouth College, and took his Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota. He returned to Maine in 1972 to help found the College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, where he taught in the English department for 48 years until his retirement in 2019. He's published three volumes of poetry and two previous novels, A Keeper of Sheep in 1991 and The Wooden Nickel in 2013. Bill, welcome to The Pointed Furs. Well, I'm glad to be here, Peter. Thank you very much for having me. We're sitting in Bill's office here at the College of Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine, looking out over the bay. Absolutely gorgeous, sunny day, snow-covered. The... uh, Mountains of Acadia in the background. Really quite pleasant place to have a conversation. We usually start these with a question of who are you and where did you come from? Well, I wasn't born in Waterville, Maine. First of all, I came as a transplant from Massachusetts when I was nine years old. So I've been in Maine since 1949 when I came here, uh, when my father moved from Harvard University to Colby College and brought me with him as a nine-year-old. So that's how I, that's how I came to Maine. And I grew, I grew up here uh, in Waterville. It was amazing for me to listen. Last night, I listened to your broadcast of Earl Smith's book, Downey's Genius. And it brought back my old neighborhood in Waterville. Earl Smith was a year before me in high school, the class of 1957 from Waterville High School. And when he talked about the Lombard inventor, Mr. Lombard, I've forgotten his first name, who invented the Caterpillar tractor truck, it brought me right back to events in my, in my Waterville days when we in Waterville, in that particular neighborhood, which wasn't Earl's neighborhood, he lived on the north side and I lived the south side of Waterville, but we had an object of worship in our neighborhood that comes up in Earl's book. And it was the man who invented the tank because what Lombard was, we didn't know anything about Lombard or the Caterpillar. By then he had become a legend and he was the man who invented the tank. And we used to go, we had armies in Waterville and I'll tell you about them later because it's my military background. Uh, But when we would meet together as young soldiers of the neighborhood, we would all make a pilgrimage to a house at the end of uh, Edgewood Street where it meets the first strangeway. In this little Cape Cod house, up in the window, we would stand and simply look, even though we were only looking at a blank window, because in there, by our legend, was an old man who had invented the tank, and we simply worshipped him. Well, it's interesting because when I read Down East Genius, I realized that Lombard had long been dead when we were up there. So not only were we worshiping the man who invented the tank, but we were really worshiping a man who had become a god. 
Well, not only that, but a, but a figment of your imagination. Oh, absolutely. And no man. But we would stand there for, I want to say hours, but, you know, we were kids, probably 15 minutes, a whole row of kids with various kinds of uniforms on. Uh, and we would look up at the window and at, at just and, and say, in there is an old man who can't move. He's in his rocking chair and he invented the tank. So out of this uh, militarized youth, how did you recognize that you were a poet? Oh, dear. I didn't start writing poetry until I came to Maine. When I, when I first was teaching in college, I taught at the University of Chicago, which was a very different place from here. And I didn't write any poetry. But when I moved to Maine and took this job at COA in 1972, it was interesting. It was an interesting change because I had a PhD in English. I had been writing about poetry for years. I mean, that's what people do who are English teachers. They write about poetry. But there was something about Maine that stripped that off and made me want to write poetry itself rather than about it. That was a very interesting turn. I was coming back to my own roots in Maine. I was leaving the city. I was leaving the big university. Uh, and what would answer to me was to write poetry itself and not about it. So... We'll come back to poetry again, but let me ask you about the COA connection. COA was a bright idea. You were in Chicago. How did you connect and come here to be part of the group that founded this unique place? I used to come to Maine in the summers and stay with my family down in Indian Point in Georgetown every summer when I was teaching in Chicago. And one summer I opened up the Maine Times, which is this great newspaper we had in those days, a statewide newspaper. I opened the Maine Times and... Uh, saw a little notice that there was a college found, being founded in Maine for human ecology. And I said, how interesting. Uh, and for some reason, I wrote a letter to, they announced the president, Ed Calber, and I, even though I was at the University of Chicago, I, I wrote a letter. It wasn't a job application. It was just a thought that I had when I read it. Please don't be too scientific, I said. Please make a whole college and don't take ecology to be just science. But uh, include the human part too. And I dashed off this letter. Uh, meanwhile, my univer the University of Chicago was absolutely exploding. Uh, protests about the Vietnam War at that year had exploded into a complete student strike on campus. The students took over the administration building. The president, Ed Levy, was forced to operate in a tent. They had an underground university. We were masked, young, young teachers were masked and blindfolded. Uh, and brought into a secret university setting in the basement of the administration building of the University of Chicago. Uh, in a, make a long story short, it wasn't where I wanted to teach. Uh, it, the university was turned upside down, interestingly enough, uh, by a strike over the Vietnam War. It's amazing how war touches upon, even though I was never a soldier, war has touched upon my life many times, uh, and that was one of them. So the response to your letter was, come talk? Uh, yes, it was come talk. It was come talk. And eventually it was come help us set up a summer program just to try this out. So we had in 1971, we had a pilot program. And I was one of the faculty there as a visitor. I was still teaching at the University of Chicago. But I was drawn back to Maine. The university was not, at that time, it's a wonderful university. I, I love teaching there. Uh, and I deeply respect it, but it was in absolute chaos at the time, as many big universities were. And I thought, I want to be a teacher and learn to teach. Uh, not only that, but I thought, this educational paradigm is wrong. 
we can begin all over again and make a new college that does it right. And that's what I wanted to do. What a, what a remarkable opportunity, actually. Well, and so then I, and I was in the pilot program uh, in 1971, we decided to go with it. We decided to go with the college. We only had $65,000 to our name, but we got together four enterprising faculty members, a wonderful president, a stellar board of trustees, uh, and we started this little college in 1972 with 32 students and four faculty members, and it was set in an old summer home that had been converted into an oblate seminary to raise young Catholic priests. So we had a spiritual heritage uh, as well. Uh, and I have to say, I connect the passionate monotheism of the oblate fathers who were before us uh, as part of the, uh, of the unity of our own intellectual quest here, which was to make a college without departments, without divisions of the mind, treating knowledge as a single enterprise, a single adventure, uh, and not a divided adventure. And that's what we've done ever since. That was what human ecology was. Well, tell me a little bit more about human ecology. What's your definition? Well, my definition of human ecology in one word is humility. Uh, it's a recognition that human beings are, are, are one simple part of the vast structure that is nature. And the first requirement of human ecology is to drop the arrogance of, of I call it post-humanism, could drop the arrogance of humanism and to try to pull away from the Anthropocene as if we were able to dominate and to accept our place as one among many species and a living planet. I mean, to me, that's it. Uh, it's a kind of a monotheism uh, without the theism. We're, we're faced with a quandary here because we're going to talk about a book through audio to an audience who most probably has not read it. Okay. Uh, and I hope they will. They will. They will. After this interview, they will. But the novelist is always asked, you know, at the party, what do you do? I'm a novelist. I've written a book. Oh, what's it about? Uh, it's a question I abhor because it's about so many different things. But if you were to give a brief synopsis of the plot, how would you do that? Do you want me to be a spoiler? No. I don't mind being a spoiler. I, I would, just I want would you be to give an to... outline, set up, the, set up the structure of the narrative, and then we're going to talk about what the yeah. narrative means. Well, you know, the book started, I have to say, I have to be a little bit historical about this, because this book started as a very different story than it came out. It started, I wanted to write about an island. Uh, I thought that would be a good thing to do, and I, in, I invented an island, uh, Amber Island in Penobscot Bay, and I, I had, I began with a kind of a King Lear Summers in Maine story in which uh, an older man died uh, and left the legacy of an island to three children, and that's the way it began. So I was, I was focused on Amber Island. I, was, I had created this island. I had begun this story of a prosperous family that owned an island off the main coast, what you would call a summer family, I guess. Uh, they came only in the summers and they summered there. And in the course of their occupation of the island, they had to hire a caretaker. And so I wrote that in. And suddenly, as soon as I put a caretaker in, that man, that young man, began to take over the book. 
Uh, he was, a, you know, a working class Maine young man, a veteran he happened to be, so I was sketching him in. He was a veteran. He had seen service in Iraq, in Operation Iraq Freedom. And once that man entered my story, he completely took it over and it became his story. And the only ownership family, let's say, faded into the background for a while. And suddenly, in military terms, my story had been invaded uh, by another character who took it over and it became his story. And in the fictional narrative, he is caught in Iraq and is in a armored vehicle surrounded by people who hated him and who he could not recognize necessarily as a conventional enemy. And there is an accident. And in that accident, he is physically handicapped, damaged and handicapped. And two of his buddies, his, his vehicle crew, his vehicle crew are killed. Yes, uh, they're he, killed, and, and he they happen to be also his best friends, especially Dupuy Williams. One of them was the closest friend he had ever had. Right. So here is a, a man then who comes back. Uh, part of his symptoms of, of the damage that's done to him as trauma is that he has lost his hearing. Right, he's lost his hearing. So he is now permanently in a world of silence. And out of that comes emerges a character that is unique in the sense that he is active in every other way except for the damage to his hearing, which then affects the damage to his psyche, which is a fascinating uh, portrait to try to evolve. Let's talk a minute, though, about the, the history of Maine and war. We've had a long and distinguished involvement in the wars of America, you have that on your mind. I have it on my mind. Uh, I mean, when I grew up in Maine, it was a very military place. Dow Field was still operating. It's enormous. Uh, there was a refueling tanker station in Limestone. It was very common in Maine for the many, many high school graduates who didn't go to college to go right into the service. It was a, it was a distinguished traditional career for Maine people to go in. Many of my friends, including my longest and closest friend from Maine, went directly into the service. It was a, it was a thing that they did, and we have a long military history. Was your father in the military? No, my father was not. He, he wanted to be. My father was of an age to go into World War II, um, but his eyesight wasn't good, and in those days, they didn't take you, so he wanted he volunteered to go and didn't go. So there's this history of the images of war, the sort of cultural images of war. You know, the World War II was the greatest generation. Mm. Uh, Korean War are the forgotten generation. There's probably the veterans of the Korean War are the most invisible and in some ways dishonored. And, and Vietnam split the country in terms of generations again. Uh, and now we have Iraq and, and right. Afghanistan. And we have all these young people coming home, marked, the ones that come home and are not lost, are marked nonetheless, as all veterans are. And it's a culture in the, in the state that I think is well-established and perhaps not as appreciated as a cultural influence as we, as, as I at least understand. 
in the period that I set my novel in, 2006, Maine was, I believe, the number six state for for casualties, not deaths, but for wounded veterans. We over-contributed to that war. And uh, getting on to the more tragic side of the returning veterans of that time, uh, which is self-harm and and violence and suicide in them, which I got very interested in because in 2003, when we invade in the spring, when we, George Bush, invaded Iraq, I was a deep protester. And I I would say the geezer protests of the time, all of us who had protested the Vietnam War, re-mobilized and you remember marched in Augusta to protest that war. I was also teaching at COA. I was teaching current history at the time. So my whole class followed the pathway into war and we were all appalled at what happened, at the mistakes that led us to that war. And what turns out to be in my novel, the bait and switch tactics, I believe that they allowed to appropriate the revenge energy of 9-11 into that war, to get young Americans into the service and over to Iraq fighting as an act of of revenge against 9-11, that is to say, to conflate Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein. And that's what happens to my young man. My young man in Maine is just a, a Maine stone worker, but he gets so patriotic and so loyal when he hears about 9-11 in New York right. uh, that he eventually, when he's free to do so, signs up. And when we invade in 2003, he basically thinks he is avenging Osama bin Laden and believes in his own heart that Osama bin Laden and Saddam Hussein at least were close friends, if not the same person. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs, a monthly interview program with authors and artists invoking the spirit of Maine here on WERU Community Radio 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. I'm your host, Peter Neal, and I'm speaking with William Carpenter about his recent novel, Silence, a compelling story of war and its aftermath specific to Maine. We also have these organizations that are around the state, the VFW, the Wreaths. Wreaths for America, they just went went through, yes, that's Uh, right. Amazing phenomenon. Uh, and then also the greeters uh, in, at the Bangor Airport when, when all the, these young the men were coming, coming abs- back. The troop greeters, absolutely. They were at, they were, Maine was a, in huge support of yeah. the war. It yeah. really was. Yeah. Uh, and Maine also has provided you know VA services and veteran service. It's interesting in my novel, however, when my character gets back home and goes briefly to the VA hospital and they actually offer him surgical replacements for his cochlear implants, for his hearing. He refuses it. He refuses it because he feels survivor guilt and what they now call moral injury from uh, the war that makes him feel not worthy of replacing his He He claims deafness as his own realm, a realm in which he thinks he will be able to speak to the dead because his best friends are dead. He doesn't want to get his hearing fixed. He wants to say this. He says, silence is the language they speak, and that's the language I want to be fluent in. So he embraces, you were getting getting back to his, he 
embraces his war wound and says, I'm going to live this way. This is uh, the cave of silence that I've been placed in is where I belong and I'm going to learn from it. But the, there are also these factors in his life which also determine his ability to succeed, which are basically paranoia and mistrust. I mean, Absolutely. paranoia is a, a sudden sound or a stranger and mistrust of institutions, sort of those kinds of, of loyalties that are traditional to our, our success in living are lost to him. Well, they are. He has another journey to make. It's not the ordinary healing journey. He knows he has to heal, and he has a teacher. That's very interesting. What happens to him is he gets back, and his old English teacher takes an interest in him and gives him a Thoreau book, and he gives him the portable Thoreau, and he says, read this book. And so Nick, as though he's not hasn't been a reader at all, he was not in the AP classes. He always feel bad, feels bad that he wasn't in the AP classes. He wasn't a good student. And yet, for some reason, this teacher is taking an interest in him and giving him this Thoreau book. He finally has to speak in writing. And he asks his teacher, why are you interested in me? And he says, and the teacher says, because I didn't go. Somebody went in my place. A different kind of survivor. Yeah, yeah in, in Vietnam. Yeah. Somebody didn't go, yeah. and I feel bad, and I want to do something. So this unique persona comes into contact on this island with an entirely different uh, class and culture. These are rusticators. They are summer people. They are genteel. They revere the island as a place to get to be away. They are from away. And... They, this interconnection, this intersection between Mainers and people from away is real, I'm sorry to say. I wish it was less real, or I wish it was less divisive. But in this case, you bring this interaction right up front. In a plot sense, that's the conflict back and forth between his reverence for nature as a, a young Mainer without, with not so much education, yep. uh, et cetera, working class, with his other group, highly educated, uh, well-established, very confident, and sure also in their values and their beliefs. He goes out to this island really to seek peace. His teacher has, has steered him in the direction of this island. He, can, he commits a couple of violent acts while he is on the mainland, enough to make him think that he's not fit to live in civilization. And so he escapes to the island. He has a few connections to the island. The main con connection is the island in its old days, Amber Island, was a quarry island where they dug granite. And it was an, there was a community of Italian stoneworkers that had come from Italy to work on that island and to work in that quarry. And my character's grandfather was among those people. So he's not only going to an island that belongs to, as you say, a wealthy summer class, but also an island where his, his grandfather was a working man. His grandfather, another veteran who lost a, a leg, lost a knee in uh, World War II, invading his own country, Sicily, uh, as an American soldier. And so Nick, my character, reveres his grandfather. And when he feels he goes to the island, even though somebody else owns it, his father worked on it and his father inhabited it. Uh, so he feels, you know, that gives him a closeness. And he goes another 
thing that happens when Nick escapes to this island to try to heal himself and to try to get away from society, to be alone, to read Thoreau and heal himself when he gets there, he stumbles upon an archaeological treasure, which is a burial site of the maritime archaic people, an ancient population also called the red paint people. And he stumbles up because there's been a rainstorm that's eroded a, a bank. He stumbles upon the artifacts of an ancient civilization. So not only does he go to the island, but he goes right to the heart of the prehistory of the island. So it gets his relationship to the island is complicated. It's under the surface. He, and that's, I think, what it what it's all about. I mean, he digs under the surface of the island, which is like digging under the surface of his own self. He gets to know it. Talk a little bit more specifically about that culture uh, and the artifact that he yes. finds. Uh, well, at the first thing he finds is a knife. And one of the things that he, that Nick carries from the war, always strapped to his leg, it, it horrifies his mother, always strapped to his leg is a large scale K-bar bayonet knife. Uh, that he's always traveled with, because as you say, he's paranoid. And the first thing he digs when he finds this site of the red paint culture, uh, the first thing he digs out of the soil is a slate knife, just like his own. And he says, and he's a stone worker himself, and he knows how the stone is worked. He said, this thing, 6,000 years old, it turns out, this knife that he finds in the soil relates him to the deep heart of the island. Um, and he takes it in for a while and carries it with him. He also finds a sword that is a sword from a swordfish, which is appalling to find. But it turns out that the red paint culture or the maritime archaic culture, those people were so heroic that they ventured out into the actual ocean in dugout canoes, dugout log canoes, and hunted swordfish and brought them back. That's what they lived on. And that's what they, so that's the culture that they had. So, and he, he worships these ancient people so much that he only has from the archaeology, from the from the sword and from the knife and a couple other things that he finds. From that, he invents and devises a culture that he feels is his own and he wants to relate to. So that's how the plot advances. He wants to be a member of this buried community somehow. How is that going to happen? His identity was shattered in the war. And he wants to build a new identity now f on this island from these people. There was correspondence. I felt the correspondence of the two knives, but I really felt a kind of an emotional connection to the iconic uh, meaning of the swordfish bill, the sword, the swordfish sword, as a, a, an entirely different kind of metaphor. It was not used necessarily for war, but it was used for worship and, that, and probably a kind of pantheist. Oh, yes. I, you know, I haven't thought of that. The thing about talking about this book, and I want to thank you, is every time I talk to somebody about it, I learn something myself. I'm still puzzled by what the meaning of that book. You know, you write something, but you don't understand it. And it, sometimes it just takes a life of its own. It takes, it, mine took a life of it. As I say, one of the characters emerged that I didn't expect. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think of it as a craft because I'm not in control of it. It's half the time it's in control of me. It's a struggle the whole time between the material and the self, and the material takes a life of its own, and you try to govern it, but you can't. It, it outgrows you, and you try to shape it at the same time that it's, it's taking its own root. So it's a simultaneous journey that you're making and that the thing itself is also making. Do you feel the same way about a poem? Yes, but it's a poem of shorter endurance. 
And when I was writing poetry, I kind of switched from poetry to fiction in the 90s because my poems were getting longer and longer. They were getting so absurdly long that I felt that there was something else and I felt I needed to do that character work and that long-term work that a novel would de- demand because it's the same thing, yes. And you also, when you start a novel or a poem, you don't know what it's going to be about. It is a complete unknown. It's not in the sense, I mean, I think of a craft as knowing what, what you want in the outcome and building toward it every time with the thing that you've imagined there. I mean, a cra- architecture is a craft. You make the plan first and you're and you're then building the thing with a, with a preconceived plan. Or if you're doing production pottery, you do that. But with a piece of fiction or a poem, it's an ex- exploration completely into the unknown. There is no template or pattern for it. And the odd thing is that even if you're finished, that quest goes on to understand what you've done. I don't completely understand what I've done in this, so it helps me hugely to talk to you about it. To me, to go back to this book, which is already written and you know written and published now and final, I'm still curious about what it is about. I mean, I have these questions. Who is this? Who is this person? Uh, and what happened to him? And you know, how did this happen? Well, let's talk now about the other side of the equation. Enter the family, the family that owns the island, yes. um, who have uh, lived there and, and rusticated for many, many, many years. Something changes within that family. Well, what he doesn't know when he comes to the island is that that island is in the midst of a civil war itself because the patriarch that you mentioned, the owner of the island, has died and left the island to his family. And there are two daughters involved. One daughter has in mind, she has a troubled financial past and her husband, and she has in mind building an eco-friendly resort on the island that will develop it and that will provide an income for her and her family. Perhaps save her family and save her marriage from bankruptcy. Uh, And so there's a plan a foot on the island to build a hotel there, essentially, like something in Monopoly, a hotel designed by the famous architect who owned the island, so there's some architectural gem to it, and that's the the quest of one daughter. The other daughter is a COA student, a human ecologist, a photographer, and she wants that island to be undeveloped and be pristine the way her father wanted it to be. It's interesting. One one little sidebar to that. The Part of the provocation is the husband, is the is one of the daughter's husband who fails in business in Florida. That's right, yeah. And has to prove something to somebody, whether it's the patriarch or to himself or to his wife. And so he becomes a kind of uh, uh, outsider, yet another outsider, who brings a different cultural attitude into an existing cultural attitude, which then begins to then confront another, a third cultural attitude. There are, and, and you know, it, it falls in a way on the poor widow, the widow who actually is in control of the island, who has spousal inheritance of the island, and so she has to control it, and she ultimately has to make the decision as to what's going to happen to this island. And she's a peacemaker. She loves all her children. She, she loves all her children. She can't stand the turmoil. Oh, and she hates the boycott because of her younger daughter. Anyway, so... The point of contact that you're talking about, at least what I think of, is one day Nick, the caretaker, is out working on the island because he actually goes to work for the development in order to protect the red paint people that are buried underneath the soil. His big fear is they develop this hotel on the island is that they're going to find those people and up and uproot them and dig archaeological pits and take them to the museum. And his 
quest becomes to protect. He couldn't protect the men in his vehicle, and he feels responsible for them getting hurt. But he might be able to protect these people who have been sleeping under the soil for 6,000 years. He might be able to protect them from invasion. That's what he sets his quest to being. And so he's out, so he goes to work for the development of the resort, and he's working on it. And a tremendous rainstorm comes, so he goes back to his little cabin. Uh, he's deaf, of course, he can't hear. And pretty soon he sees something coming through the storm. And he doesn't know who it is. He thinks they've come. He thinks that, that the enemy over in Iraq has come to get him. Or he thinks his dead comrades have come to get him and they've come to kill him and take him away. He sees this shape coming through the rain uh, outside his cabin. And it comes and it comes and it seems misshapen. And the monstrous form approaching him is a 22-year-old woman whose family owns the island. And who has a grant to document the natural resources of the island. She has. To preserve it in, photo in photography as, a, as her act of protest. Absolutely. Against what her, her siblings are about to perform. Absolutely. And, and, and her sadness because she, she thinks she's lost and that they're going to make the development, they're going to make the hotel. She thinks she, her island is lost, so she wants to document it in photography. And that's what she comes. And so he, the caretaker, the wounded veteran from the working class of Maine, meets this upper class privileged uh, COA student photographer in disguise. And gradually they get to know each other. He becomes a cook out there. It's interesting. He takes up cooking and foraging and he learns to live off the land because he wants to live off the land. So he learns to cook mussels and, you know, snails and uh, he fishes and he, he and beach peas and he learns to forage from books and um, shoots a few deer and turkeys and stuff. So he lives off the land and he makes her, you know, a stew of oysters and mussels. Uh, and cooks for her and gives her uh, dry clothing and everything and sets up. And also, I would say, he falls in love. Yeah. yeah. So the, the resort, the project goes forward. Uh, the mother is co-opted in a way emotionally. She can't say no. Yes. Uh, she doesn't want to say yes, but she can't say no. Then what happens is really interesting. The mainland tradespeople, the contractors and the subcontractors uh, come because this is work. And they bring skill. Yes. They, are, they bring skill and, and craft to make the building. They build the building. And it's not badly done. It's not a piece of junk. It's been done in part because Nick is involved, but also there's a very strange connection, I think, between the local fishermen who are transporting people back and forth and the tradesmen who somehow are bound together in this project as well. That's good that you notice it. That's a there are character that I haven't noticed yet. So that's to notice those people and they come out, those are the working class. Typically, right, there's a whole class of people on the main coast and there always has been that has been to the service, the building, the contracting, the servicing, uh, and the re repair and maintenance and of, the the, of, of the caretaker. They are the eternal caretaker class. And when I talk to them, because they help with my house too, uh, when I talk to them, they say, you know, we are not opposed at all uh, to the vast wealth and the vast difference in wealth. Inequality doesn't bother us at all. This is our bread and butter. These, we need these people and we need them to be rich. Uh, and so there's a kind of a uh, acceptance of the vast inequality of the main coast by the fact that these people that you're talking about live, live off of it. So it's fa that's fascinating. There's a reciprocity missing, though. Uh, in the sense that the family in and of itself, except for Nick and the, and the one daughter, yeah. 
don't necessarily respond to them on, a, on any kind of emotional level. They're simply people performing a task. You know, that's right. And not only that, because they're of the working class and they don't really notice them. They haven't right. been to college. Right. Uh, and not only that, not only are the helping class not paid attention to and ignored, but those people are also the people that fought the war, yeah. that fight the war, and they don't pay attention to that either. And that one of my points is... In the Vietnam War, they drafted college students. So the entire spectrum of the United States, men and women, I should say, but largely men of the United States uh, Army that went to Vietnam was a cut across. They took rich people. They drafted, I mean, you know, I was almost drafted. They, I was drafted, and they drafted me, and I, I happened to have a two-month-old baby or three-month-old baby at the time, uh, and I happened to be in Waterville, so I went to my, I draped my baby over my shoulder, <laughs> Matt, uh, at three months of age, and I walked into the draft board and said, look at this. And at the time, that could get you out and said, okay, they checked me off. You don't have to go to Vietnam. And so that young man, Matt Carpenter, my son, who's now 56 years old, saved my life as a three-month-old. This is Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU 89.9 FM, Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. My guest is William Carpenter, novelist, poet, and former professor of English at College of the Atlantic in Bar Harbor, Maine. Well, I enlisted actually in the Vietnam era and, and engaged in what probably was the single most important social educational experience of my life. Did you go over there? I didn't go to Vietnam yeah. by the luck of the draw, but the point was that the interaction and the whole exercise of essentially what the army does is what it reduces everybody to the lowest common denominator and then builds them back up in an image uh, of their own design. But it's the stripping away as a young man, the stripping away of all your pretenses and all your assumptions and all the things that you've been taught to believe. All of those things basically are disrespected in a very real way. They don't matter because now we we're going to we're going to free you from all of that psychologically and physically, everything else, culturally. Uh, and we're going to build you back up. You start as, a, as an empty page. And you're going to do that with people who are all different colors, all different races, all different um, ethnic origins. And you're going to have to work with them. And your life depends upon it. And so that sets up a sense of value that builds in you a kind of social empathy that I think is so missing in people who, in fact, have not served in the military. I was a war protester and draft evader my whole life, but now the only thing I wish I could change was to go back and undergo basic training and go through the service. Yeah. So I completely understand what you're saying. I would like to have had that. Uh, members of my family and close, close friends of mine have been in the military, and I've always envied them that, tr that training, exactly what you're saying. Because uh, there's a kind of human ecology, in a way, we don't think of the military having anything to do. It's almost the antithesis of human ecology. But when you think of the process that you've talked about, of being stripped down and being equalized and removal of all personal arrogance, that's something which I think, and it could be that Nick, when he goes over there, duplicates that again in his own personal life. He strips down to nothing. He can't hear he goes away, he leaves his community, he leaves his society, he goes under into complete nothingness to recover again, having lost that identity through a military accident, 
but he recovers on the island an identity and a sense of purpose and a mission that he never expected to have. So part of the problem in the class intersection is matters of respect and empathy. And that's something that lies underneath in this actual the part of the book we're discussing now with the, the, the mainlanders coming out, the people who, who want to have different agendas for the island. Yeah. And it suddenly becomes a dichotomy. It suddenly becomes a confrontational dichotomy. It's black or white. It's either or. And there's certainty on both sides, which becomes, in some cases, it's neurotic. In some cases, it's redemptive. But it's, it's part of, of, of an experience that we see today, every day, this sense of respect, the interaction between respect and empathy, being respectful or empathetic to other people's views, and understanding that all answers are right. Now, that's my, my politics. I'm, I'm, well, I'm I, think that, I think that as a, as, a, uh, as a human ecologist, my young woman, Julia, is probably in that, in that state you know, not respecting the military and not, and maybe even though she's very um, progressive in her views, she never noticed, and neither did her sister or her mom. Her sister says at one point, uh, we never do anybody who served in this war. Because by then, by the Iraq war, they had removed the draft, so they were not entering the colleges and drafting people away. They had a volunteer army, presumably, who had wanted to be there like Nick. But by the end of the plot and by the end of the action, Julia, um, owner's daughter, comes to a complete respect for what is done, for what he rises to do. Because once he, once he finds the, the mission, uh, he enters the drama of the island. He enters the story of the island in a very forcible manner and alters the picture. So by the end of the book, one of the young men, a literary kid from one of the uh, one of the owner's family, a literary poet, actually, from a college in southern Maine, uh, goes up there and the developer has commissioned him to write a history. Uh, but by the, by the end of the book, this historian says, I was supposed to write a history of the island, but Nick did it for me. And so actually they have translated the history of the island transfers creators of the history transfer from the, you know, the quarry people, the ancient red paint people, the farmer who found sheep on there, the island has a history. Uh, the people that lived underneath the surface, uh, the hunters and main people who used it, all of this has become the history of the island. And now this soldier in the long run has written himself into that history and has earned a place in it that he eventually takes. So. It's all about metaphors. It's, it's all about metaphors. All about metaphors. And so the island is a metaphoric space. It happens to represent nature. It happens to be in Maine. So that space, that spirit of vitality that's associated with the environment or with the, with the Maine landscape is embodied in this, in this island. Uh, and it's a place where he goes for redemption. Does he find it? Does he find redemption? He finds a kind of redemption that he never expected. Uh, he does. And he finds a kind of redemption that his teacher, who kind of sent him out there to heal, his teacher directed him in this direction, not exactly, but he goes to the island and 
he thinks he can find himself and he thinks he can find an identity, but the identity that he finds is astonishingly the entity of the enemy that he has been fighting his, his, as a soldier. I, I think I'm really influenced by the Bhagavad Gita and the sense that, the, that in a war, the warrior and the enemy are the same person. Uh, and in the apotheosis that ends the book, I would say, Nick, the American soldier, becomes Mohammed Atta, the Islamic protagonist of 9-11. And that's, that's a, it's something I never thought. I mean, I never planned it out, but this is what happened. It's an astonishing merger of two people, a American soldier and a suicide bomber from Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda operation. I mean, I'm the enemy of the United States, the perpetrator of 9-11. Uh, and they fuse in a way in, that I never expected. I don't know if I'm talking too freely about the core of the novel, but that to me is what it was. Uh, it, it, when to, It's a mirror image when a soldier comes upon the enemy and becomes them. Uh, and ironically, they attack an edifice. They, ah, they do. They, I'm glad you said it. Actually, one of the things we haven't talked about is that one of his um, war wounds is really hallucinatory schizophrenia. I guess it would, I'm not, a, I can't use psychological jargon, but along with his moral injury and along with his deafness, and I think probably craft-wise in the novel, I now realize I made him deaf so he could hear voices from his own interior. Because as he loses his hearing, he begins to hear voices and this comes upon him. He devotes himself to the craft of building the hotel that his beloved Julia doesn't want to have. He devotes himself to building that. And in the long run is part of this um, demolition. And that's what happens. And there is a description of that destruction, which has many levels itself. Um, yes. Being in lower Manhattan at 9-11 and witnessing that experience, there is a horrible contradiction of evil and good and or... or, or, or well, you were there at that time. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. violence, violence and beauty. Images you cannot forget for the, for the pathos uh, and the destruction, but... There also was this other apocalyptic part of it because the towers represented the height of you know, the capitalist dream, the whole world model of globalization, the whole financial markets. What a symbol! Uh, uh, what a symbol! Its shape of it and everything. Yeah, it was like the Tower of Babel. That's what. That's what right. it turns out in the book because the Tower of Babel was in, in Iraq, and actually, Nick, my soldier, went as a soldier to the place where. It had stood and had watched it and had considered what it meant uh, for God to strike down a tower because humans had built it too high. And uh, if any, you know, human ecology, right? You, I mean, you built a tower because of your collaboration, because everybody could talk together. So God strikes the tower down and he punishes the people by making them speak different languages from then on. So they won't be able to collaborate together and build anything so big. And Nick says at one point, I went to the Tower of Babel, he said, and I know those languages, and one of those languages was silence. So the island restores to its more or less natural state. It does. The 
tower at the end is destroyed, is down, to a complete restoration of the site and regressing so that it looks like nothing was ever there. So that this thing, this enormous construction, uh, looks as if it never happened. I think that's the what I found to be the power of the book, is that it, it incorporates so much more than just the story of one young man from Maine who goes and is, is hurt and, and damaged and comes back, or the aspirations of an educated family from away that want to do something they thought was good. And it sort of brings together these sort of cosmic opposites. And it reconciles in such a way that what's left is the pure state of nature. And that, to me, is, you know, gives the book a metaphoric power that it might not otherwise have. In the end, the restoration at the end. And that island will take back the grasses and the, and the trees and the shrubs and the, and the sea, will take that island back and make it primordial again. A primordial again. And the people who are buried in there, the ancient maritime archaics, will be able to rest in, in peace. Among them will be other people added to that site. What is there now in, at Amber Island is an opportunity to rebuild, to regenerate. To regenerate. Yes, it's interesting because the, I, the way you speak of it in the future of the book, of the island um, obviously began as a pristine island and then it had to experience the human aspiration and arrogance of constructing this tower on it and it had to be built by humans, it had to be taken down by humans, it had to be restored. I mean, we have the work on this planet to do exactly that. We have built our civilization, we built our towers, and now we have to put it back in some way. I mean, we have to, I don't know if, it, another metaphor of the book is oil, of course, another thing from underneath the surface that Nick goes over there. And one of the things he realizes as a soldier when he's over in country in Iraq is that the war was really fought for petroleum interests. It wasn't, you know, it's not a cultural war. It's not about 9-11 or revenge or anything like that. It's, it's hardcore fossil fuel interests. In and he realizes that. Ever after that, he sees two things all the time when he looks out in the water, Nick does. He sees the super tankers bringing oil up through Penobscot Bay the way they do, up into the ports of Searsport and ultimately Bucksport and Bangor taking fuel, which are in and out constantly, he sees those and he realizes, he realizes those tankers were paid for in the blood of American soldiers. And at the same time, whenever he sees a tanker going up carrying oil, he looks up in the sky and he sees the vapor trail of a jet craft taking the coffins of dead Americans uh, from the battlefield back to Dover, Delaware, where they're buried in the cemetery. So he, he sees the direct interchange of petroleum and human lives. I mean, that's part of it. And that's part of the quest that we're on now. We're trying to get rid of, of petroleum in this world. And we have built, and we can't obviously reduce the world to what it was in the beginning. But nevertheless, we can reduce some of the towers that we've built and the arrogance we've displayed uh, and reharmonize re it with nature. Oil, of course, being the, over time, the detritus of, of living things. Yes. Let's go back to College of Atlantic and Human Ecology for just a few minutes at, at, toward the end here. Is it making any difference? Do you think that the ideas that, that you've taught here for so long 
and this place has embodied as almost uniquely for so long, uh, has a future? Our graduates have gone into the world. They've gone into the world at large with what they've learned here, which is there's an alternative. And it has to do with with college education because a lot of, you could say, high-level college education recently has been devoted to populating Wall Street and the capitalist world with the best minds for finance and industry. And there is another use of the human intellect that we teach here, and that is to repair the world and to walk a little more humbly. And to some extent, I've always thought of this school as deprogramming people from the aspirations of Ivy League style education and to teach them that you can have a sense of massive human success without ruining the earth and by caring for it. And when I see what's happening in the world since we started in 1970, when I see the arrival of electric cars, my son just bought one, the attempt finally to fix this earth, which is on the brink of absolute catastrophe. And certainly COA with only a few thousand graduates, I don't know how many, a couple thousand now, it's wonderful, wonderful, but it's not that we can contribute numerically to the world, but I know that we have contributed intellectually to the world as an alternative way of the use of the drive and the evolved energy of human thinking rather than destruction of the earth through our construction. We might try the opposite. We can reconstruct the earth by dismantling the excess of human culture. I guess you could put it that. That makes sense. I mean, I makes sense to me. Yeah. I just think that the the time is so great for these values to be expressed. It's a great time to be an entrepreneur and an inventor. And yes. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I I come in contact with a lot of startups, and they're all amazingly young young people who have a different set of values. Uh, they're ambitious. They want mm-hmm. return for their for their work, but they are looking beyond just a, an extension or a reapplication of the old values. So I'm looking for the main genius. I'm looking for the, the the young people here in Maine, whether they're from College of the Atlantic or not, to essentially evoke the spirit of the place because these values are still around. They're tenable. You can feel them. You can see them. You can experience them. And you can go out and you can can invent something that may be the thing that isn't just a repetition or a reiteration of what we've already done, but is something that is truly transformational and regenerative. And I, I, I think human ecology should be taught in every school. I think it should be every high school should teach you human ecology as its basic organizing principle. We'll see. Well, it would be wonderful if we could export our human ecology to the world, and we certainly have tried to do so. Our students are in the world contributing these ideas everywhere. And, you know, Maine is a place which seems forgotten and at the end of the world, but actually I think there is a leadership if you look at Maine. I am amazed by the land preservation that's gone that's going on here. Everywhere I look, around my house and around, of course, uh, MDI started it. The park was saying, okay, we're going to take this piece of nature, which could have been developed George Dorr and everyone else who made this national park have shown the way to preserve this. And I think that Maine, that all over Maine, there are land trusts and preservation communities which have the idea that, uh, the same idea that's on my island, on Amber Island, let's dismantle the towers of arrogance and 
see if we can keep uh, this land in its natural setting. And I think Maine is going to be a leader of that, not just inventing things, but also, you know, taking care of, of its land, valuing it and valuing the land as much as the people. There you go. Really, if you, if you, it, that's why I said, basically to me, human ecology is humility, because it just means, and you were saying it too, learning to respect. And how do the owners of this island, they had to, you know, suffer a bitter lesson to, to learn to respect the working people of Maine that they may be, didn't pay attention to. And the indigenous people of Maine. The indigenous people of Maine who were under their feet and they never knew it. The indigenous people from history and from now, absolutely. Uh, and to have that kind of respect, first of all, you have to take down, you know, the towers of human ego a little bit. And that's what we mean by human ecology too. To me, it says, I mean, the towering presence of the different disciplines have to come down and meld into one discipline. That's one thing. So that's that's what human ecology is. To conclude, can you can you think of the some nouns that would evoke the spirit of Maine? Beauty. I, I feel that Maine is the most beautiful state in the country and one of the most beautiful places on earth. And I think that Maine, by preserving and respecting its own natural beauty, and that's its responsibility and our duty here is to preserve and encourage. Uh, natural beauty and our place in it and our respect for it. You have been listening to Conversations from the Pointed Furs here on WERU 89.9 FM Community Radio in Blue Hill, Maine. We've been speaking with William Carpenter about his novel, Silence, available at your local independent bookstore. This interview and others previous are archived and accessible at WERU.org and online at pointedfurs.org. My guest next time will be Kimberly Ridley, author of two award-winning children's books, The Secret Bay and The Secret Pool, and two books of essays, Wild Design and Extreme Survivors, each researched and assimilated from her observations of her backyard in Maine. I'm Peter Neal. Thanks for listening.